0: Okay, let's turn to Revelation chapter 5 and Romans, Romans 11. We're not, we're not escaping from Romans. My wife Pam wanted me to tell you all that it's her birthday tomorrow, but uh, it really is. So. <laughs> and I am a liar, but no, it's her birthday, but she didn't tell me to tell you that. Oh, say the word out loud. Carol, it's your birthday today. Tomorrow too. Carol's birthday tomorrow too. All right. Hey. Oh, you wanted to tell me that. You wanted me to tell them that. I forgot you. Never mind. And i <laughs> it was the, yeah, the triune over there, the triune meeting. I don't know why I'm doing this. I'm the most anti-birthday person that ever lived, but I guess it's God's sense of humor, not your birthday. <laughs> okay. Now, speaking of Romans, um, we are going to hopefully segue into a series on Romans. I'm going to call it Romans, the epistle, at least so far. And it will be an altogether different series, although it will be, I guess if you want you don't want to miss Paul too much, it will be generally under the umbrella of Better Call Paul, but it's going to be Romans. And it's um, the most, well, it's kind of a dangerous venture. Nobody has ever gotten it right, and nobody ever will until the Lord appears. And so it's, we're going to do the best we can with it. And I was asked this week, will I be having the notes for Romans like I did for Revelation? And the answer is yes, which means twice the work, but I think it will be rewarding work. So that will be the series coming up. My plan is to finish Romans 11... And then to do a short segment on 1st, 2nd Timothy and Titus, the pastorals, because there's a a lot in there that I want to get that pick up before we get started. So, also, I want to, I guess I should remind you in advance, some of you don't know this, but the Coxcomb Hill is going to be closed for about two months starting, not this Sunday, but the Sunday following, I think. Well, check your news listings. That means you'll all have to be very resourceful. At least some of you will have to be very resourceful. There are alternate routes, and we... We're going to do our best to have an alternate route for you or alternate routes out there at the information table this coming Sunday. So it's an inconvenience, not a disaster. And speaking of disasters, we do want to continue our prayers as they seem to be multiplying, and for especially Puerto Rico and Mexico. Mexico, literally, there's a search now going on for children in a school that they think survived. Thirty children were killed in the earthquake. And we're, our prayers are for the mercy of God to be extended, for life to be miraculously preserved, and for people to raise up, be raised up to speak in the name of the Lord, as a result of this. We also are praying for the recovery efforts and the ministries like Samaritan's Purse and Salvation Army and their effective and quick response, not only with provisions, but with the gospel. So I know that's already going on in our prayer groups, but I wanted to remind all of you for the sake of prayer. So Father, we do thank you for the privilege that we have for effective intercession and that the prayer of a righteous man is, avails much and how much more prayers of many righteous saints that are righteous by your grace. We present before your throne of grace the need of those in disaster in Mexico, Puerto Rico, other places, in our own nation, in Florida and Texas, Louisiana. And we pray that you'll extend mercy and give help from the throne of grace. We pray the same for the difficulties and afflictions that our own members of the body are going through, some of which are unspoken, some of which are requests that have been made, presenting them before your throne of grace. We know that you value our prayers and that you keep them in vials in heaven keep them on store in, in archives that will be gloriously revealed to us in the coming age. We thank you for the privilege of studying your word and may our attention be directed toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And may the radical Christocentric message of Paul's gospel create a radical Christocentricity in our own hearts so that we may manifest the very life of Jesus in our mortal bodies which is an extraordinary miracle of grace. We ask this in his name. Amen. As I speak, I think the sun will be setting and the sunset indicates the beginning of the new year in the Hebrew calendar, Rosh Hashanah, which customarily is announced by the blowing of the shofar or the ram's horn trumpet. And the blowing of that trumpet signals the people of Israel to be attentive to spiritual things, to be attentive to eternal things, to be attentive to the one who is the altogether other, even Yahweh, our Savior. And that's what we have. Let's consider the trumpet having been blown, let's consider the call to attentiveness as the Israel of God. Let us now consider things that are eternal because the things that are seen are temporal and transient, but the things that are not seen are eternal and never pass away. For we in this life walk by faith and not by sight. So, Revelation chapter 5, the message tonight is called Speaking Ultimately. I find myself in my study often thinking ultimately, thinking in terms of the ultimate things, thinking in terms of the Eschaton, thinking in terms of Christ, the ultimate, ultimately thinking. And so my message tonight will be called Speaking Ultimately, a Radical Christocentricity. We'll start with Revelation 5, because this really was our segue into Romans. Then one of the presbyters, or elders, said to me, John, the revelator as he's called, stop crying, the lion of the tribe of Judah, and this is the phrase I wish you'd tune into, the root of David. The root of David is Ritza, R-I-Z-A, riza and it's used in some critical places that we're going to look at. The root of David has won the victory and the right to open the scroll and the seven seals. In verse, a, verse 6a, the first part, and I saw among the elders between the throne and the four living beings, a lamb standing there that appeared to have been slaughtered. Then in Revelation 22:16, a very notable verse, a very important verse, the last self-identification of Jesus in our canonical scripture. And he says this, I, Jesus, sent my angel to confirm these things to you, that's John, for the churches. I am the root. The connection here is obvious. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright morning star. Notice that phrase too, the bright morning star. Now we're prepared for Romans 11:16. kind of putting it in reverse a little bit from Sunday morning. I, I'm hoping to bring the second part of Hey, Gentile Christians, Curb Your Enthusiasm on this coming Sunday. I'm juggling three or four lines of thinking. One of them is going into Romans, the purpose of Paul in Romans. And so I, I get right in the middle of writing for tonight and I'm going off this way for Romans and off this way for this and off this way for that. It's one of those times. Very painful leaving one series and going into another. Very weeping and gnashing of teeth. Only kidding. Romans 11, 16. Where if the first fruits offered up are holy, and we have a lot going up into this verse, up to now, so is the whole batch of dough. And if the root is holy. Beta. Used both Revelation 5, 5 and Revelation twenty-two, sixteen, both identifying Jesus. If the first fruits offered up are holy, and in 1 Corinthians 15, 20 and 23, in another connection, the first fruits are Christ in resurrection, so is the whole batch of dough. In Christ, all will be made alive. The whole batch of dough, ultimately all of humanity. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Now, as the first fruits ultimately is Christ, ultimately speaking, And Paul isn't speaking ultimately here. There's only the concealed suggestion of him speaking ultimately. In fact, what is implicit in Romans 11 becomes explicit in Romans 15, as Paul winds down the main body of the epistle, which ends in 1512 and 1513. And then we have some important doctrine afterwards, but it's not the main body of the epistle. What is explicit comes in Romans 15, so I'm anticipating that. So, as the first root ultimately is Christ, so the root ultimately, again, is Christ, and so we consulted Revelation 5, 5 and 6, which in many ways is the very heart of the Revelation, where the slaughtered and standing lamb, that's the crucified and risen Christ, the Paschal Lamb, is called the root of David. Here, he's only called the root of David. That means he's the source of the Davidic dynasty. He is the root of David. But in sixteen he's not only the root of David, but he's also the offspring of David. But offspring there is not seed, it's genos, so it encompasses a whole people. He actually comprises all of the seed of David. And so the root speaks of Christ, ultimately. Now, Paul isn't saying that in in Romans 11. I'm saying it because I think Paul says it later. I'm saying it because I think there's a radical Christocentric element here that's concealed on purpose to be revealed later. It's obscure now to become clear later. And Paul is, as a spirit-led teacher, goes from obscurity to clarity, as any good teaching really does. So in Revelation 22:16, Jesus identifies him as the root and the offspring of David. Now, when you get into the offspring of David, you're correlating with Romans 1, 3. Paul says, this is the gospel of God about his son who is revealed in the scriptures of the prophets. The son of David, kata according to the flesh. The son of David, according to the flesh. He's talking, he's aiming here at Israel kata sarka, that all Israel will be saved, including Israel, which we call Israel after the flesh. It's true that God makes a sharp, distinction between Israel after the flesh and the Israel of God, but we must not make the mistake to think that that means that Israel after the flesh is not ultimately, ultimately saved. That would be to make the mistakes of the Gentile Christians, the mistake by which they say, branches were broken off so that I might have a place in the olive tree, assuming that the branches broken off, which is hardened Israel, are broken off permanently. That's a deadly assumption, a fatal assumption, fatally wrong. And so, He's speaking of David, according to the, the Messiah, coming from David according to the flesh, Romans one three. According to the flesh, he is a descendant of David. And he is declared also to be the divine son of God by resurrection from the dead by the spirit of holiness or the spirit of sanctification. God made Christ sanctification for us. 1 Corinthians one thirty. Nothing is more important than that statement. God made him to be, and it's God's doing. This is God's doing. In Psalm one hundred eighteen, twenty three, 23 He has made The stone that the builders rejected That the leaders of Israel And the leaders of Judah The Judeans called Ironically the Jews Rejected Became the very head Of the cornerstone This is marvelous in our eyes This is God's doing This is the doing of God What is the doing of God? Both the rejection By the leadership Of the stone And the establishment Of the stone As the chief cornerstone Of the new creation Not just the cornerstone Of the church The cornerstone Of a new creation as Jesus calls himself that in Revelation 3.14. I am the beginning of the creation of God. I am the beginning of the creation of God. He is the cornerstone of the new creation, the resurrected Christ. According to the flesh, the son of David, a descendant of David, is, according to God, sanctification for all of us because he was resurrected from the dead by the spirit of sanctification, otherwise known as the Holy Spirit. Christ has been made to be sanctification for us, and wisdom, and redemption, and righteousness, he says. But the emphasis is on sanctification. This is God's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes if our eyes are enlightened. And that's my prayer, that our eyes would be enlightened as to the divine acts of God and their total distinction from the acts of human beings, whether ritual, moral, ethical, or religious. One thing about God, and this is really the first point of theology, God is wholly other than us. Once we see that God is the completely other than us, then we don't see in any group of humanity others. We see us all as one in the redemptive plan of God. And this is an enormous thrust in Paul's teaching of Romans. The church at Rome, and I can determine this from, I think I can be able to conclude this even today, was more fragmented and more divided than the church in Corinth with much more serious divisions. The problem in Rome was deeper, wider, and more significant than the problem's in Corinth, in Thessalonica, maybe even Galatia. And so there is something that calls forth every one of Paul's epistles, the, all ten that we're dealing with in terms of church epistles and Philemon. Something calls forth Paul's writing. If you put them all together, the crisis that calls forth Paul's letters is the change of ages. Paul is a watchman standing between two ages, a closing age, a passé age, a passing age. The night is far spent, but the day is dawning. He's a watchman standing, In the coalescence of two ages, in the intersection of two ages, the epistles of Paul, therefore, are called forth by this crisis, this radical, universal, apocalyptic crisis of two ages. And in a sense, we all stand there, too. And the book from which Paul brings his central prophetic work, his central prophetic text, Habakkuk 2.4, it was Habakkuk who said, I stand on my watch. I will stand upon my watch. And this means that he was standing watch and announcing what's coming, announcing what's gone, announcing what's coming. So all of the epistles of Paul, including the pastorals, have an exigency or an exigence, depending on whether you're British or American, exigency, a, some crisis calling them forth. And there's also a crisis calling forth the epistles in a lesser sense. For example, in Galatia, there were three churches, and they were defecting from the gospel of the grace of God under certain false teachers, Jewish Christian missionaries, of all things, who were endorsed and sponsored and empowered by certain false brothers in Jerusalem. And they were being drawn away from the gospel that Paul preached. That's a crisis that called forth Paul's quick and even fierce response. We've already learned that in First and Second Thessalonians, there was a couple of questions that came about in the church that were very important because people were mourning over their lost loved ones, their loved ones who had passed away. And Paul wrote First Thessalonians in large part to address that question. It was a serious one. In Second Thessalonians, they had received both a false forged letter and a charismatic type prophetic message that the coming of the Lord had already happened and they were left behind in so many words. And so Paul had to address that exigency, that crisis. But it was all related to and subordinate to the crisis of the ages, as Galatians 1.4 makes it very clear. He says in Galatians 1.4, Christ died for our sins in order to deliver us from this present evil age. And in Romans 12.2, he says, stop thinking according to this age. Stop being conformed mentally and attitudinally to this age, but rather be transformed by the renewing of your mind, the apocatastasis that occurs in you precedes the apocatastasis that occurs in the universe of proportionate being. And this is the crisis of the ages. The person who communicates the gospel, and that's all of us in one sense, also stands as a watchman between these two ages. I didn't intend to go this way tonight, so let me get back to my track. In Revelation 22.16, Jesus calls himself the root and the offspring of David. But in addition there is, and I'm kind of still building a scaffolding for Romans, turn to Romans 15.12, in which Paul quotes the Septuagint of Isaiah. While you're turning there, I've been reading, and I'm very glad I read, Paul Menear, M-I-N-E-A-R. It's only 109 pages, but it's 1,000 pages in terms of density and content. And it's called The Purpose of Paul, Purposes of Paul in Writing Romans. And I'm very glad I read this. Because he says that you can really, the whole tone of Romans, he says, is the audacity of Paul. The boldness of Paul. And Paul is very bold because he gets his boldness from the prophets, especially Isaiah. Remember as we introduced Romans 11 in, in Romans 10, 20, and 21, he says, Isaiah is very bold. He's audacious. Or as Snuffy Smith would say, bodacious. He is audacious. He has strong, bold. He's daring. It seems like he's taking a leap, but he's really taking the next logical step in the plan of God in the mind of Christ. When you have the mind of Christ, every step you take seems like a giant step to those who don't know the mind of Christ. But it's just a baby step if you do know his mind. So, Paul imitates the boldness of Isaiah in Romans. And it's my desire to imitate the boldness of Paul and the prophets in our treatment of Romans, which means that God will lead us as he should. He will lead us beyond the pack of commentators that are excellent commentators. And without them, I'd be nowhere in terms of my understanding of Romans. But we want to move past the pack. And there's a wonderful pack of commentators. I'm speaking of Karl Barth. I'm thinking of Paul S. Meniere. I'm thinking of Leander Keck. I'm thinking of Douglas Campbell. I'm thinking of a host of other... Writers that I still have yet to read as we go through Romans. But here he quotes Isaiah again. I said all that to say. He quotes the Septuagint of Isaiah eleven ten. And again, Isaiah says, There will spring forth a root of Jesse. Now this should be taken as a shoot that springs from the root, that is Jesse. A root that springs from the shoot, or a shoot, rather, that springs from the root, that is Jesse. Who's Jesse? David's father. And here he says, There will spring forth a root of Jesse. He who arises. Arises is anistemi. A-N-I-S-T-E-M-I. Anistemi. A-N-I-S-T-E-M-I is the word for resurrection. It's related to anastasis, a resurrection. So if we're going to take this seriously, this shoot that springs up from the root of Jesse, the line of David, will be resurrected to do what? To rule the nations. He arises... Is raised from the dead, as we know, to rule the nations. On him, the Gentiles will hope. On him, the Gentiles will hope. The shoot that springs from the root that is Jesse here is also the root of Jesse because in Revelation, he calls himself the root of David. If he's the root of David, he's the source of the whole lineage of David, which means even though he springs as a shoot from the root that is Jesse, he is also the root of which Jesse was just a shoot. You're saying now, shoot. Or you're saying, Shoot the pastor. (laughs) I know, this is one of those nights where I do a halo jump. High altitude, low opening. And I'm still in the high altitude. I'm between the the high altitude (laughs) and the low opening, having jumped out of a perfectly good airplane. Now, this is good exercise. Any, Any pastor kind of knows, or some teachers here will know what I'm talking about. You're just taking a leap and hoping that you land on something soft. But the shoot that springs from the root that is Jesse is also the root of Jesse and of David. This is the same one who was raised from the dead to rule the nations. Isaiah predicts it. Paul announces it's already happened. The Gentiles will hope in the one. And here's the law of similarity and dissimilarity again. The Gentiles will hope in the one. And we are saved in hope. Romans eight twenty four. The Gentiles will hope in the one who, like King David, sprang from Jesse. But who, unlike David, is also the root of Jesse and of David, the divine source. Like David, Jesus sprang from Jesse to be the king of Israel. Pilate wasn't wrong to put over his head, king of Israel. This is your king. He is the king of Israel. And all Israel will be saved because he is the savior king. And all Israel is saved only when all the nations come in. So he's the ruler over not only all the nations, but all the nations, including Israel. Like David, Jesus sprang from Jesse to be the king of Israel. Unlike David, Jesus arose from the dead. Remember when Peter preached, he said, David's sepulcher or tomb is still with us today. He's still in it bodily his body's still there or at least some dna left but this jesus god has raised from the dead this son of david this descendant of david god has raised from the dead so unlike david jesus arose from the dead to be king of israel and all the nations in fact to be lord over both the living and the dead romans fourteen nine. unlike david jesus is the messianic king from the lineage of jesse who is also the source of that lineage that Jesus is the King and co-regent of God the Father. I say co-regent. It's actually a word I discovered it accidentally this week. C o r e g e n t. Co-regent It's better than vice-regent or vicigent. He is a co-regent, equally ruling with God the Father. He is King and co-regent of God the Father, and that he is is the implication in the beginning of Romans, Romans one one through four, and at the end of the main body of Romans in fifteen twelve. And so there's a possibility of teaching Romans from beginning to end, or from end to beginning, or from beginning and end, and then a pincer movement, which was the German tank division's panzer movement, a pincer movement. You go on either side and you come to the middle. That's an intriguing way to teach Romans. So I've been fanning out this idea of the first roots, and I've been doing it on Wednesdays and Thursdays and have not been torturing our Sunday audience with that. So you say, thanks a lot. Oh, shoot. The idea of the first roots and the root is fanning out because I want to show the radical Christocentricity, the radical Christocentricity, the absolute Christ-centeredness of Paul's argument that is slightly concealed here in Romans 11 but bursts forth brilliantly by Romans 15. The point being made here specifically in Romans 11 is that the root bears or supports or holds or sustains. The root bears both the Gentiles and the Jews. And I'll tell you why. There's a, there's a local problem here. There are five groups in this fragmented church. Paul doesn't even say to the church in Rome. Like he does to the church in Thessalonica. Or even to the churches in Galatia. He doesn't say to the church in Rome. He says to the saints in Rome. Because already in Romans 1, 1, seven there's a suggestion that there's a scattering there. And from Romans 14, we know what the scattering is. There's group one. There's a group of strong believers that are strong in faith in terms of knowing the liberation they have from kosher table, from the Torah, and from many other laws. But some of them have, become, have gone too far with that liberty. And they've flaunted a liberty that's outside of the realm of love. And then they have despised the weak in faith, as they're so-called. Jewish Christians who still have a... Dependence as it were in some degree on Jewish laws days like Rosh Hashanah They have they they have respect to these days now Paul says leave them alone Paul is a member of a group in Rome. He's like a group. There is a group in Rome that is strong in faith and doesn't despise the weak Then there's a group of the weak in faith that judges the strong Saying you can't even be saved and do that And there is even some that among the so-called strong who are actually saying things like let us go out and sin so that grace may abound. They're actually thinking that way. And of course, that invites, rightly so, the shock and awe of the weak in faith. You've got all this happening in Rome. There's five groups. Paul belongs to the group that's strong in faith, strong in the liberty that's in Christ Jesus. But he doesn't despise the weak. He doesn't invite him over to dinner to have a quarrel with him because quarreling is as much of a sin and is equal in its degree as a sin as adultery, as we see elsewhere in Romans. Don't receive a brother with doubtful disputations in order to quarrel with him. Hospitality is the opposite of quarreling. And so, that's what was happening. You'd have hospitality in terms of not homes where people eat together, but in terms of church, house churches. Here's a house church. A Jewish Christian with some scruples left over from Torah comes in. The Gentile strong people hit him right at the door and say, what do you believe about this, this, and this? And then they despise him and they shuck him off. Or, that's doubtful disputations. That's a quarrel. Quarrell, I don't care if you're right. Quarreling is wrong. If you're quarreling with a fellow believer about something, and I mean it gets elevated and heated And then almost it functions outside of love. I don't care if you're right. God doesn't care if you're right. Being in the right isn't right in that case. Sometimes someone has to suffer the wrong. So two believers are quarreling. The one who starts the quarrel or the one who takes the bait in the quarrel is right. The other one is wrong. The next day they hate each other, but who's the first move belong to? It should belong to the strong one who though he was right will actually apologize for quarreling. And suffer the wrong. We say, well, that takes a big sold person. Exactly. We'll see how strong in faith you really are. You have to be right. People have to be politically right today. And they despise those who disagree with them. That's a, there's a terrible bitterness in our land today because of that. But I've been fanning out here. Because the point that Paul is making is both the Gentiles and the Jews, both the group of Gentile Christians, or several groups of them in Rome, who are the so-called strong in faith, one despises the weak, one doesn't, and the groups of Jewish Christians there who are considered to be weak in faith and are despised by a segment of Gentile Christians who are the strong in faith. And guess who's right in the middle? The doubters that don't know which way to go. And Paul's kind of like trying to protect them. He talks about some serious things. If your liberty means the destruction of your brother, you're no longer walking in love. You're no longer in the spiritual life. You are no longer walking worthily of the gospel of Christ. Harsh words, maybe. The sharp words are needed. And the righteous will smite me, and I'll consider it a favor, a kindness. All scripture is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, and for correction. Reproof is one thing. Correction is another. Paul's doing a whole lot of correcting here. Because when he gets there, he wants to be able to have a unified assembly who will be one with him in his westward missionary effort, the Spanish mission, the mission to Spain, which will complete the cycle of Paul's mission to the Gentiles. That's one of the practical reasons. All of the epistle to the Romans, then, on this line, pushes for the unity of a fragmented church. It's my personal conviction that the fragmented church that we have today in America and throughout the world, really, will only be united in the light of a universally saving Savior, Jesus Christ. In the light of the vision of a universally saving Savior, Jesus Christ. In the light of a true understanding of the universal impact of the cross of Christ, which requires an identification with the depth of the cross. The denial of self, a taking up of the cross, and a following of him, in other words. And so, all of the epistle to the Romans on this line pushes for the unity of a fragmented church in Rome as we will hopefully see much more clearly in Romans, the epistle. Some of what I'm doing now is pushing, pointing toward a future series, which a lot of these things that I'm saying tonight will be more clarified for you. Speaking in ultimate terms, then, the root is Christ. And if the root is holy, so are the branches, even the broken-off branches. Even the broken-off branches. You know what Israel means? The name Israel? He who fights with God. He who contends with God. Israel has contended with God as God intended Israel would do. God intended that Israel would contend with him. Otherwise, the son would not be crucified. God intended Israel to live up to its nature as a contender. And God, Jesus, at the Mount, on the so-called Sermon on the Mount, which is really a discourse on kind of a hill, said, you've heard that it's been said, to love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I'm telling you, love your enemies. And he goes on to say that this is, or even before he introduced, if you're going to be perfect in love, and be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. Your love has to be loved for the enemies. Because God loves Israel who is his enemy. In fact, in Romans eleven twenty eight, Paul even said they are the enemies of the gospel for your sake. But they are beloved for the patriarch's sake. Romans eleven twenty eight. He's holy. And so is all of Israel. And so are all the nations. And so is all humanity. And so is all creation. The heavens and the earth in him. Genesis 1.1, 1-1, Ephesians one ten, Colossians one twenty. So in keeping with our mountain climbing analogy, I ask you a question. Am I too daring making this leap? Here's a second question. Or is it even a leap? He didn't say that the root is Christ here. No, I know. But the suggestion is there. And the explicit graphic presentation is there in Romans 15. So, am I making a leap? Am I too daring? Am I too audacious? Am I too bold to make this leap? Or is it even a leap? It is really, perhaps, just another logical step. It's just another logical step. If the first fruits are the patriarchs, like many commentators say, including A.T. Robertson, if the first fruits are the patriarchs, then still ultimately the first fruits is Christ. Because from the patriarchs, he came. And he is the root of the patriarchs, even as he sprung from the patriarchs. Patriarchs means essentially Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it goes down through the tribe of Judah and David, the the lineage of David. There's the Abrahamic lineage, there's the Adamic lineage, which is the largest. There's the Abrahamic lineage, there's the Davidic lineage. Jesus Christ comes from all these lineages. So he's the royal Messiah through the lineage of David. He is the seed of Abraham to whom the promise was made the unconditional the universal promise, but he's also the son of Adam as Luke brings up, which means that because he's holy as the descendant of Adam, so are all the Adamic race. Is that a leap? Or has God called me to be bold and I'd better obey him or I'll just be regular? Some of you say, well, at my age, being regular is a good thing. Never mind. Just... <laughs> now, in keeping with the mountain climbing analogy, then am I too daring here? Am I too bold? Am I too audacious? Am I too bodacious? Great balls of fire, I'm bodacious. Not two. Because if we say the patriarchs, and we, in a sense, Paul said it, he says these branches that are broken off, these hardened part of Israel, they're enemies of the gospel. For your sake, you Gentile Christians. But they're beloved for the patriarch's sake. Why? God loves the patriarchs, so he loves the rest. God loves the patriarchs, so he loves the hardened part. But if the patriarchs are to be considered the first fruits of Israel, then it has to be that Christ is the ultimate first fruits, because he is both the root of the patriarchs and the fruit of the patriarchs, the descendant of the patriarchs. Remember, and I'm glad we went this way first, Galatians 3.16, the promise that God made was not only to Abraham, but also to his seed, especially to his seed. And the seed is singular Christ. So all those billions and billions and even trillions of celestial luminaries called stars, that's just Christ. Christ is going to comprise all the heavens. All those grains of sand that you couldn't even count a bucketful on a vacation or in the rest of your life you couldn't call, count the grains of sand on a section of the beach. All the grains of sand on all the beaches, all the seashores of all the earth. Innumerable. That's Christ comprising all of the descendants of Abraham as the singular seed. Now, when Jesus calls himself the root and the offspring of David, it is presupposed that he's also the root and the seed of Abraham. Let me say that again because this connection is, is made actually in a certain verse. If Jesus, and he does, he identifies himself as the root and the offspring of David, if he is the root of the Davidic lineage, then he's also the root of the patriarchal lineage. And if he's the offspring of David, he is also the descendant of the patriarchs. Now, so when Jesus calls himself the root and the offspring of David, as he does in Revelation 22.16, it is presupposed that he's also the root and the seed of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob. So in the ultimate self-identification of Jesus, in Revelation 21, 22.16, as the root and the offspring of David, he calls himself in the same breath, and I capitalize breath, B-R-E-A-T-H, as the spirit. He says, by the Holy Spirit, in the same breath, the bright morning star. Now what's he talking about? Now he's talking about Balaam's fourth oracle that he spoke from God. Balaam, after he repented and was converted and was no longer mad in the sense of insane in 2 Peter 2.16, he spoke four oracles which are intimations of God for Israel. The fourth oracle of Balaam is in Numbers 24.17 and he says this, there will arise, aniste me, a star from Jacob, a shoot from the root of Jesse, but this time a star From Jacob. So when Jesus said, I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright morning star, he said, yes, I am from the Davidic lineage and the source of it, but I'm also from Jacob, one of the three patriarchs. Therefore, I'm from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. God said to Moses at the burning bush, and this is another line of doctrine I don't even dare touch yet because there's a lot more to build on it, but he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jesus took that And said Moses was speaking of resurrection there to the Sadducees who didn't believe in resurrection in Luke 20 37 What if you think i'm driving you crazy jesus would have driven you right into the loony bin He said moses was speaking of resurrection when he said i am the god of abraham isaac and jacob Why because abraham and isaac and jacob were long dead then but jesus said but god is only the god of the living And not the dead abraham isaac and jacob are living he's the god of the living And so moses was speaking of resurrection when he spoke of the God of the patriarchs. And the Sadducees were, I was going to say what I always say, but it's overdone. Very sad, you see, but I won't do that again. But I won't say that. But that's, I only introduced that road. I'm not, that's just a road sign. When I get on that road, it's a whole, wow. It goes into a big forest and you get lost. But I love to get lost in the scriptures. I don't want to find my way out. Now, In the ultimate self-identification of Jesus, he not only speaks of himself as the root and the offspring of David, but in saying that he's the star, the bright and morning star, the one that comes from Jacob, he's saying that he's also the root and the seed of the patriarchs. So you could say the patriarchs are the root, but if you're going to speak ultimately, you have to say that Christ is the root because Christ is the root of Israel that bears the Gentiles, but Christ is also, going back further, the root of the patriarchs that bears the root of Israel that bears the root of the Gentiles, that bears the root of all humanity, that bears the root of all creation. Christ is that root. Now, there is a real Christocentricity here. Check out Romans 9, for example. If we fan out Paul's analogies regarding the first roots and the root, it's impossible not to wind up with a radical Christological emphasis. I can't help thinking of the testimony of Mary Neal, my sister pointed me to it, and I heard her speak. She's a spine surgeon, and I guess she was on a show with Kathy Lee and uh, somebody else, Yoda or somebody. I don't know. I I don't watch the show, but what's her name? Who? Hoda? Okay. And they had her on. Now, what she she did was, this also goes to Christ, Mary Neal did not believe in Christ. She was on a kayak trip in South America. She took the kayak down and went down into a river, and she was underwater for 30 minutes, and she died. But she came back, and she said, she came back to life. And her experience was that while she was underwater, a person was cradling her like a little baby. And she said, it was Christ. And he kept pouring all of his being into me, and it was love. It was love. And she said, I felt totally forgiven, totally known, totally loved. He filled me up with all the fullness of God, she said. And they said, well, how did you know it was Jesus Christ? And she said, I knew it on an absolute level. She said, if I went to the grocery store and saw my husband, I'd say, there's my husband. It was the same kind of identification. Then she said, something that blew my mind in her writing, she said that there are millions of people in America that have had this experience and are still alive, and they don't know what to do with it, so they meet in almost like a church. And she said, atheists almost always say that the person they see after, in that death or near-death experience, they identify as Jesus. And they're atheists. They said, did you believe in Jesus before this happened? She said, oh, no. Then why, she, she said, he sent me back here to tell other people so they can have a hope. And that's exactly the kind of hope. And her name, look her up, Mary Neal, I think it's N-E-A-L. She was a spine surgeon. She, if you see her speak, you know she's not a nut job. Whereas my father would say a nut cake. Instead of a nut case, he would say, that guy's a nut cake. Well, she's not a nut cake. You will, it reminded me, and I was telling Pam this, when I was at college, we were in a religion class, and they were talking about all this phenomenology, and the, and the, uh, the instructor said, I'll take this up tomorrow night, don't worry, I just let me do this. His name, as I said, was Luther Martin. I think he still has a website, but he said, I said to him, but Christ isn't But you say. You say that he's just another phenomena of the Redeemer myth, like Dionysus who died and gave wine to people to make their hearts glad, and he's just another mythical. And I said, that's not my experience. And he said, well, what's your experience? And I said, I didn't know how to say it. I said, I met the Lord Jesus Christ. And he said, how do you know it was him? and it's, it, he was the only one and I said I, I wish I had her words because my answer should have been I knew on an absolute level but what I said was some pretty much the same thing I said I knew there was none other than him I knew that he was the only one I knew that he was God I knew that he was the only savior you know what I've told this story before the professor said that's it it was a two and a half hour class we were about an hour, hour in he said we're done today he, he could not continue he took the rest of the class to the chicken bone which was a bar in downtown Burlington, Vermont at the time it's not there anymore I don't think and I don't think I was invited and that was the end of the class so that was the beginning of my career of disrupting people's lives which I'm doing again tonight but if you you can catch that now I don't do a lot of this stuff where I recommend people that have been you know on the other side and back because a lot of it is kind of you know questionable hers is not questionable at all I think it's right on target so if you get a chance to look her up she's just published a book too I don't know about that I don't know if I can recommend it I'll have to read it first but in closing in Romans 9, 5, the scripture says the patriarchs are theirs. Paul's talking about what are the advantages of the Jews? What are the advantages of Israel? And he starts that question in Romans 3. He holds a thought to Romans 9, 9, 5. He says the patriarchs are theirs. Wow, that's a phenomenal thing. The patriarchs belong to them. But you see, he does what I'm doing here. And that's why I'm on safe ground, I think. He says, and from them, by physical descent, the word is kata saka He's pointing to Israel, Katasaka after the flesh. Katasaka. Consider Israel after the flesh. First Corinthians ten eighteen. Consider they sacrificed to demons. They were at the communion table of the devil. They were sacrificing in idolatrous sacrifices. They died by the thousands in judgments for fornication, for idolatry, for this and for that, and for murmuring and complaining and quarreling and this and that. He said, Consider them. But here he says they the patriarchs belong to these people, Katasaka. But then more he takes the leap. And from them by physical descent came the Messiah. There's two ways to read this. I read it this way. There's two ways to read it. Either way, you read it, though. It's Christ. Came the Messiah who is blessed as God over all. Pass. Uber alles," as the Germans would say. I'll hit you right on that Uber. The Messiah who is blessed as God over all. And that means over all the living, all the dead, all of Israel, all the nations, all creation, all humanity. He is God over all. So if we're gonna speak of the patriarchs as the first fruits Romans nine five and eleven twenty eight suggest it or the root that presently bears both Jewish and Gentile Christians, and eventually Israel and all the nations, we're gonna to have to speak of Christ. Who is the root of the patriarchs and therefore the ultimate root that bears both Israel and the nations that sustains both Israel and the nations both you Gentile Christians with your liberties and you Jewish Christians with your scruples and you Jewish and Gentile Christians who are doubting which way to live or which way to go and you Christians both Jewish and Gentiles who are strong in faith but don't despise the weak he's the root that bears you all there's only one other and he is utterly other than us and it's God so that means that among us there are no me and others There is no me and others. There is no me and other ethnic races. There is no me and other people. There is no me and other religions. There is no me and other social classes. There is only God is the only utterly other. And there are no others in humanity except the all over which Jesus Christ is God. This is the gospel. This is the effect of the gospel. All of Paul's argument goes to show, and I will close with this, all of Paul's argument Really, starting in 9 1, but even deeper than that, goes to show that God has not rejected his people. And that his people ultimately means Israel and the nations as one people. Romans 15, 8 through 11. Moreover, as the first fruits and the whole badge indicates, it is God's intention to save all of Israel, as it is his intent to recapitulate all things in the heavens and on earth in Christ in Ephesians 1, 9, and 10. And this is in keeping with Paul's purpose to proclaim Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery of God's universal and unconditional intention. But he has the further intention, as I will take on in the study of Romans, a pastoral intention of strengthening believers in the power of God for the trials of the apocalyptic eschatological war. It's on, it's on, it's on. It's that which we should pay our attention to when wars and rumors of wars are circulating about from mankind. And the rumor is now that September 23rd is going to be the coming of Christ. That's the newest one because of the alignment of the planets in Revelation 12, 1 and 2, which thank God we've already taught on. I'm pretty sure September 23rd, is that Saturday? If I'm here the 24th, we won't have to worry about Coxcomb Hill in a couple weeks. But if I'm here the 24th, it means that Jesus has not come back yet in his parousia. But he has come in his people. He's coming to millions of Muslims in dreams and visions. He's coming to millions of people in near-death or death experiences. Millions of them. That's happening without a preacher. His coming is nigh. His coming is near. That doesn't necessarily mean it's coming on September 23rd. All right, we're done. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity. And we thank you again for your word. We thank you for the word that gives us comfort, gives us hope, gives us confidence, gives us a kind of excitement and joy that is inexplicable and impossible to describe. It's a joy that's connected with anticipation. It's a joy that's connected with what's to come. It's a joy that stands at the intersection of universal changes of ages, of an apocalyptic revelation of Jesus Christ. that we all together have the opportunity of announcing that change through a change in us, a change in our thinking, a change in our mentality, a change in our attitude, a change to be conformed to the mind of Christ. We thank you for this opportunity, Father, that you granted us tonight and for the opportunity to present an offering of substance,